Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, June 17th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to lately. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Swai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So Peter, I believe, is having some work done on his uh, apartment, his, his condo today, so that's why he's not going to be able to join us. Uh, we're doing a water cooler a little bit early this week because Jacob, I think, is taking Friday off, a, a well-deserved day off. So uh, we're just recording the water cooler a little bit early this week. So let's just jump right into it, guys, and, and talk about what we've been doing. Uh, scanning the document that we all share that <laughs> that has the list of all everything that we've all been doing, it's, uh, it's pretty bare out there, except for Chris, who... Uh, Chris, what have you been up to? Uh, I uh, recorded yet another episode of 21st Century Spielberg. I actually did it last week, but I forgot to mention it last week. So I'm mentioning it now, and this is the episode on... Uh, War of the Worlds and Munich, and I'm I'm getting a lot of fee- good feedback about this episode more than other episodes. So uh, everyone, go listen to it because I I think those are two of not just his best 21st century movies, just two of his best movies in general. So I was excited to record that one. I felt like a pretty big fool, Chris, because I started listening to this episode and I got about halfway through it and I listened to the world, the war of the worlds part and really enjoyed it. And you were talking about how Munich is arguably like one of Spielberg's best films, period. And I have yet to see Munich. That's like one of my Spielberg blind spots. So I had to pause the episode and I have not uh, caught up with that movie yet. But um, it sounds like from from the little teases that you were giving before you really dove into it in the second half of that episode, that that's uh, a really big one for you personally, right? Oh, yeah, I love it. I, I'm very curious to see what you think of it whenever you get around to watching, not to let me know. Yeah, I wonder if it's streaming anywhere. I'll have to check that out. But um, yeah, I mean, guys, we're the pandemic is still happening. So just for you know posterity's sake, if you're listening to this uh, 50 years from now and wondering why we haven't been doing anything, that's probably the reason. So let's just move on into our uh, our next section, which is what we've been reading. Jacob, it sounds like you've been doing a little bit of reading, right? Yeah, I'm still making my way through War and Peace very slowly, but as 
I say when I first started reading it, I'm going to be breaking up by reading smaller, easier books as well. So I started reading The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty by Ethan Sherwood Strauss. And this is sort of me wanting to have more scratching that NBA itch after watching um, the Michael Jordan documentary series uh, on uh, ESPN and just being curious about where the league goes uh, since it's going to be playing their entire season at Walt Disney World at the ESPN Sports Complex, which is so weird. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. Uh, so this, this book is it's, it's very brief, like 250 pages long. And I was not familiar with Strauss's work uh, before this book, uh, but apparently he's a well-known sports journalist. And he makes his uh, intentions with this book very clear, like in the introduction, uh, whether you will appreciate what he's going for here or not, which is he knows the sports world well enough to not have any rose colored glasses. He like they've been completely shattered. And this is not a book celebrating the golden state warriors rise to the top and how they were, how they're an amazing team. It's, it's not like a celebration of the NBA. It is a dissection of, okay, here's how it actually works. Here's what a negotiation looks like. Here's what the money uh, goes into this stuff. Uh, feels like here's what a meeting of all the uh, team owners in Las Vegas, the annual big meeting where everybody yells at each other actually feels like, uh, this is a job for, for people, for the players and for the owners and managers and trainers. And it's not, you know, a uh, feel good movie where the good guys win and everybody celebrates. There's a montage of like, you know, people hugging at the end. It's a, it's a cold, difficult corporate world. And the book dives really deep into how a team is built to, and how a team has built to win uh, gets there. And, I'm not too far into it, but it is fascinating. There's absolutely no fat on it. It is just ruthless journalism about uh, how being in, working with working in the NBA sphere sounds like a absolutely miserable thing. And I'm really, really enjoying it. Uh, I know that um, famously while writing this book, Strauss himself got into a massive Twitter conflict uh, with uh, Kevin Durant, the basketball player who was a superstar before he joined the Warriors and, uh, and apparently that's, that's actually a component of the book. Uh, like it be, he ends up becoming part of his own story, even though he didn't, he didn't set out. So I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting to get to that part. Uh, yeah, this is a, it's a brand new book. So it came out a few months ago. And so far, having not finished it, I can't give the full recommendation, but I am really, really enjoying it a lot. Even though having the, the rose colored glasses of, you know, sports fandom being shattered in front of you is not always fun, but man, I'm, I'm, I'm still really intrigued and really deep into this, deep into wanting to know more. This sounds like such a Jacob book because from what I know of you, you don't really care about sports that much, but you care so much about like meta narratives and like the stories within the stories. And that sounds like exactly what this is. It's not necessarily just like tracking the rise and fall of uh, certain teams. It's all about like the nitty gritty, the process of it, which I, you know, from all of the, the conversations we've had and things that you watch and, and uh listen to and and respond to well and previous water coolers it sounds like that's uh really something that's like right up your alley right yeah i'd, I'd say so i mean uh i I, you know, I follow a handful of, of sports things like I, i'm from san antonio so i follow the spurs and stuff like that but it's like i don't love sports i love sports stories so like so if, if someone's able to crystallize the important stuff in an entertaining way would it be a documentary or a book i will respond to sports stories far more strongly than i would by watching a sports game live if that makes sense mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Chris, you've also been reading something this week. What have you been reading? Uh, I read Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi. And this, if you don't know, is the book that inspired uh, Goodfellas. And Goodfellas is my my all-time favorite movie, my number one film. And yet I never 
got around to reading this for some reason. So I figured, you know what? I'm finally going to read it. And I got to say, I'm blown away at how faithful the movie is to the book. Like pretty much every line of dialogue and every bit of narration in Goodfellas is lifted like verbatim from this book, which is, you know, if anyone knows anything about books being adapted to film, that's very, very rare. So I was, I was really uh, surprised. Like, like, you know, also because I've seen Goodfellas a million times, like reading the book, I could just see the movie unfolding mm-hmm. in my head as I read it. And it's a really quick read. I, I read it in like one day. So if you like me love Goodfellas and have never gotten around to reading wise guy, you should do it because it's pretty much like the movie in book form. So it was great. This may be an impossible question to answer, Chris, because you're so familiar with the movie, but do you think people who haven't seen Goodfellas would be able to, um, I guess is the book written in such a a fashion where the visualizations might come to you as, uh, as cleanly and, and stuff as, uh, as they would somebody who has that, you know, Scorsese's vision in their back pocket. Yeah. It's weird. Like it's hard for me to separate that, but the, 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 it's, the book is so like breezy in in the way it's written in the way, like, I'm sure it's primarily, you know, Henry Hill, the, the main guy telling a story and Nicholas Pelleggi recounting it. And I'm sure, you know, he cleaned it up a bit and made it more, uh, it flow better, but the way it's it's written down, it, it's it's just you can picture pretty much everything that's happening, and uh, yeah. So I I would say maybe, but yeah, again, I've seen the movie so many times that <laughs> it's like impossible for me to really tell for sure. Yeah. Speaking of uh, movies that we've seen a million times, uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. We've talked about that a bunch on this podcast. I think, Jacob, you talked about it recently. I know I've talked about it before. Um, I recently, the only thing that I've been watching of any worth or value this week aside from my ongoing rewatch of Lost is uh, Reunited Apart the um, Josh Gad uh, I don't know what you would call it Zoom reunion series ongoing thing where he gathers together uh, different uh, members of famous pop culture casts and whatnot and he did this recently for Fellowship of the Ring this was like a few weeks ago at one you know at this point but I uh, had bookmarked it and finally got around to checking this out with my wife, who is also a, a massive fan of Lord of the Rings. And um, I think I, you know, I, I came away enjoying it. It's like 50 minutes long or something. And I thought maybe it was a, a tad on the long side, especially since a lot of the stories that uh, the the cast um, recounted during this event were things that were pretty well established at this point. It's not like Josh Gad was able to... Um, you know, get a ton of fresh material out of these people, but there's something so enjoyable about just seeing all of these actors uh, from this, this movie and and some of the ones from the later films as well, uh, joining together and, and showing up and, you know, they seemed like they really um, are, they really enjoyed the time that they spent on set together, which is not something that you can say about uh, every <laughs> major blockbuster movie, let alone one where people spend years on end filming three movies in a row. So um, yeah, it, it's an enjoyable watch. I I found it to be a little odd that Josh Gad, and I, I have, this is the only Reunited Apart that I've seen so far. So I don't know if this is a frequent thing, but maybe anybody else who's seen more of these can chime in. But I found it a little bit odd that Josh Gad was just sort of like, setting up these actors to do line readings of of the lines that they delivered in the movie like he would there are so many people in the lord of rings cast 
and he would just be like, okay, now you two, you guys have a scene that you want to do, right? And they would just sort of do it. And it's never as good, obviously, but, and it sort of seemed like they were just humoring Josh Gad a little bit, but um, I, I don't know. Has anybody else watched any of these? And, and do you guys have any thoughts on like that aspect of this show in particular? What you're describing is why I've, I've chosen not to watch these. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I really like, my wife and I struggled a lot with whether or not to watch this. And ultimately our love of the Fellowship of the Ring one out over our intense annoyance with <laughs> with what Josh Gad brings to this experience. But um, he actually was a little bit more reserved than I thought he was going to be going in. So I, I guess credit where credit's due. But um, does anybody else? Yeah, I, I feel like I'm on the same page too because uh, um, I've watched a couple of these. I watched the Back to the Future episode and the Ghostbusters episode, and I've been meaning to get around to the Lord of the Rings one. Um, and I'm torn because like, I, I really do like what Josh Gad is doing by getting all these people together virtually and, uh, you know, creating this nice distraction. And, but at the same time, it feels like it's, it's intentionally made to be something that is much more pleasing to general audiences and more casual fans as something just to, just to check out as opposed to people who have been following these franchises for so long that already know so many of these behind the scenes stories and, you know, are, are very invested in them enough to where, you know, hearing them talk about the stuff, it's like, oh yeah, we already know that. And it's, I will say, it's still fun to see them, you know, interacting and goofing around with each other. Uh, the Ghostbusters one, especially most recently, when Gad does his thing where he has them see if they can remember their lines or you know read read the um, script pages again. Uh, they, they clearly have fun with it. You know, I, I was even surprised to see Bill Murray having a good time when they were going through some of it, and he was especially tickled by William Atherton being on the Ghostbusters episode and doing readings of his lines as, as Walter Peck. So some of that's really fun, but I, I do wish they would dig a little bit more into it and it didn't feel so much like, you know, a, a scripted thing that, that feels like it was, uh, you know, a retrospective made for network television. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I'm somebody who, who I, I really don't have a problem with Josh Gad. I, I normally, I think he's pretty funny. He can be a little bit overzealous and obnoxious at times, but I, I still find him to be fairly enjoyable for the most part. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, these are, they're, they're harmless. They're fun, but yeah, I, I do wish there was some more meat to them. Yeah. And I, I just kind of found myself wondering why, like after he would ask these people to do these line readings, occasionally they would just show the clip from the movie of them doing the, the line reading as if it's like inviting the comparison between what they just did and, and what they did before. <laughs> it's like, what, why It's just sort of baffling editing? I thought, but, uh, yeah, uh, overall, I think I agree with you, Brad. It's like a harmless, a totally harmless thing and, and not uh, not nearly as annoying as I uh, feared it would be. So that's reunited apart. Uh, you know, Ben, before we get any further, uh, since you have a kind of a, a shorter list of things to talk about today, do you want to hear the time I was involved in the Lord of the Ring reunion? Uh, yes. What the hell are you talking about? Okay. Um, this is a story I've, I've never told this in public before. I told all the other friends. It's not, nothing scandalous, but... um. I was at a film festival many years ago, uh, before my time at Slash Film, and I was uh, uh, congregating with friends uh, between screenings, and because of films that were being playing at the festival, two members of the Lord of the Rings cast were both present uh, at the film festival, and I won't tell you who they are, but they are both hobbits, and apparently we have some mutual friends, and these two hobbits joined uh, the circle of people I was talking to, and... We had a good 20-minute long conversation, me and a handful of people with two Lord of the Rings actors. And then uh, I was invited to go behind the theater and uh, smoke weed with all of them. And I turned it down because I didn't because I, I don't smoke. And I think about it every single day that I turned down the chance to, to smoke <laughs> marijuana with two hobbits. And I 
and deeply upset about it every single damn day of my life. Not just because you got to know that Ian McKellen came out and and blew some crazy ass smoke just to <laughs> top the whole experience. Right now. <laughs> well, if Ian McKellen was there, I think I would have I would have bucked up and did it. I feel, I, I feel I should have smoked a damn marijuana. I should have I should have done it. Yeah, because that, that's that's, gonna that's Middle Earth pipe weed that you're turning down, Jacob. <laughs> I know. It, it, We're it, it, talking, Jacob. This is I can't believe I said no to this. It drives me crazy. <laughs> All right, Jacob. Well, you have also been uh, watching a bunch of stuff this week. Uh, why don't you run down the list for us? Uh, speaking of Hobbits, I watched Come to Daddy, the uh, new horror thriller starring Elijah Wood. Uh, I, I love Elijah Wood, uh, his current career path, which is just to endorse and star in the craziest shit he can find. Uh, Come to Daddy is directed by Ant Timpson, the uh, New Zealand film producer, making his directorial debut. Uh, and this movie played a festival scene last year. Uh, I missed that fantastic fest. And it's it's crazy. Like, I don't know how much I want to say it because this is one of those rare cases where I genuinely think you going in blind is a, is a genuine benefit. I usually think that's a BS excuse for a movie. I usually think that saying that, you know, I usually think that a great movie can't be spoiled. If um, But this is a movie where I, I, I'm just going to not say, say, say as little as possible. The movie is about Elijah Wood playing a 30-something hipster who receives a letter from his father who hasn't seen in decades. He goes to his house out in the middle of the out in the middle of nowhere on the coast, and things go get incredibly uncomfortable and spiral into many different directions. And just when you think the film is one thing, it's another, and then it's another, and then it's another. And by the time the last fifteen minutes are happening, you're wondering what the hell am I watching? How did I get here? Uh, as a total experiment, it really does work. It is really balanced on Elijah Wood being able to play a lot of different crazy things. And he's surrounded by some really awesome character actors, Stephen McCaddy, uh, Michael Smiley, uh, Mar- uh, Martin Donovan, just, I don't want to say how they figure into it, but if you're easily upset, don't watch this movie. It is definitely a definition of like a midnight movie. It goes to really deranged places. And uh, when we talk about our favorite moments of the year list, all I'll say is um, the, the kitchen fight. That's all I'll say for now. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the kitchen fight uh, later this year. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Chris, Ooh. I know you wrote... Oh, sorry, Ben? I was just going to say, where did you watch that? Oh, this is streaming uh, for free for Amazon Prime members. It's mm-hmm. also available for rental on, the, on all the usual suspects, you know, for three ninety nine. Chris, I know you wrote about this briefly in your streaming column. Uh, where do you fall and come to daddy? Oh, yeah. I, I love this movie. This is one of my, my favorite movies of the year. But, yeah, it's one of those movies where the less you know the better it is. Like I went into this knowing almost next to nothing and it, uh, it very much surprised me. So yeah, I, I definitely recommend it, but try to read as little as possible as you can before sitting down to watch it. Yeah. I think even the, the description on the Amazon page is no more than what I told you. So I'd say go with that. Just be prepared for a wild trip. <laughs> That's come to daddy streaming, uh, streaming on Amazon available for rental on all the usual suspects. Uh, I also watched Wounds, which is streaming on Hulu. It's actually a Hulu film. They 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 own they own it, and it's on there permanently. This is a film that uh, Ben reviewed this out of uh, Sundance in 2019 because I was trying to Google around 
uh, to read more about it after I watched it, I found Ben's old review. Uh, ben, two years <laughs> later, or I guess a year and a half later, how do you feel about Wounds? I'm curious how you reflected on this. So I, without having seen it since uh, that Sundance Festival, I, my memories of Wounds are it's a really sweaty movie, and it is something that um, I found struck a really or, or tried to strike but couldn't quite strike a the proper balance between being genuinely tense to occasionally laughable. Like I think it was, this is a movie that uh, veers into um, unintentional humor on occasion, but at the same time has some moments that I found to be like deeply um, uh, creepy and unnerving. So I, I remember being very curious. Like I remember walking out of that screening and being like, I kind of like that movie. I'm not sure how the horror movie community is going to react to this film. And I don't think I've really had a conversation with anybody, especially like horror fans, uh, about what they think about it. So what did you think about it, Jacob? I really liked it. But at the same time, I know that uh, it was an Annapurna production and Hulu uh, uh, released it. But I know it was, it was originally intended to be a theatrical release. But after seeing it, I'm going, man, this would have been destroyed in theaters like a regular audience full of like paying customers who want to have a good time in a horror movie mm. would hate wounds would would leave the theater furious and <laughs> maybe i'll set it more because uh the director uh babak anvari uh previously directed under the shadow a horror film that i really love but it's also deliberately unsatisfying it deliberately uh is not a good time <laughs> and leaves you hanging in a lot of ways and wounds is very similar uh for those who know wounds is uh set in New Orleans, and it's uh, about Army Hammer plays a bartender uh, who, in the aftermath of a, of a bar fight, finds an abandoned uh, phone, takes it home, and ends up accessing it and finds very bad things on the phone, which sends him into a series of even worse things happening to him. And I don't want to say more than that. It's another not movie I think benefits from a little less knowledge of you not knowing what the mystery here is, uh, but reminded me a lot of, like, some really, really, a really, really sinister uh, 1890s short stories, like short horror stories, which seems like a really <laughs> silly thing to say, but I'm thinking of like, you know, uh, Mackin and Lovecraft and Robert Block, even who's a little bit later, uh, who'd write these, you know, 40 page stories about people who stumble into something so horrible they cannot comprehend it and it destroys them. Uh, and Wounds is actually based on a novella, uh, a modern novella. Uh, and it kind of has that same short story vibe going on, which means it feels a little long for what it is. Uh, but maybe because I like that vibe, maybe because I like that kind of story of people being sucked into something that they something that that destroys them that they cannot, you know, comprehend. That's my favorite kind of horror, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, So even though the movie uh, offers no answers and goes out of its way to uh, be uncomfortable and keep you at arm's length from any kind of closure, I appreciate that, but at the same time, this is not for everyone, but I, I think it's suitably icky and creepy, and surely Chris has seen this by now, right? I have, and people hate this movie, but I, I really like it. I think it's genuinely disturbing um, and just weird. It goes to some really weird places. It also does a really great job of, of capturing New Orleans. I mean, I've only been there once, but watching this made me sort of like not homesick because I never lived there, but it made me really want to like go back there just because it really captures that, that vibe of that place, even though it's, it's like the sweatiest place on earth. And I don't, really, <laughs> I don't really do well in, in hot weather, but it's such a, an interesting place that watching this made me want to go back there. But I mean, yeah, I, I know for a fact that people who are like 
hardcore horror fans even just hate this movie. And I don't really get the hate, honestly. I think it's a, a fascinating movie and it's very interesting. And I, I read the short story and I actually think the movie is better than the short story. So I don't know. I <laughs> But I, I do know people just do not care for this. <laughs> uh, Dakota Johnson is in this and uh, Zassie Bates from uh, Deadpool 2 in Atlanta she's also in it I, I remember really liking her performance in it too um, Dakota Johnson just sort of like gets sucked into the same uh, nightmarish scenario that Army Hammer does in there so if you want to see her just sort of like go off the deep end a little bit I think Wounds is, is maybe for you so I don't know maybe our conversation here will inspire some people to check it out since as you mentioned Jacob it is like a Hulu uh, acquisition a Hulu original now so it's it's there for you to for you to watch so I'd be curious if people want to um, shoot us an email and let us know what side of the uh, the critical divide you fall on with wounds so yeah I think it's begging uh, for a rediscovery I think I think there's an audience for this movie that's just that's out there and it's not the Friday night matinee audience it is maybe not even like the average horror fan audience it is the it is a freaking weirdo audience <laughs> <laughs> all right well yeah hopefully that inspires the right people to go check it out so uh, what else have you been watching Jacob uh, did a Spike Lee double feature of Inside Man and Black Klansman we talk about Black Klansman a lot this podcast i i like it a lot uh it feels even more relevant now than it did two years ago uh inside man is an interesting one though streaming on netflix by the way uh whereas black clan has been streaming on hbo max uh, inside man is very much a straightforward heist cop movie uh, denzel washington uh show lg of four clive owen this willem dafoe this is stacked stacked cast uh jodie foster christopher Plummer, and but what makes it special is that uh I'm going to break out the cliche. I'm going to break out the most eye roll worthy description in film criticism, but New York is a character in this movie guys. Uh, <laughs> but really, I, I think uh, Spike Lee has a really such a good eye for that city. such a good eye for the character and voice of that city. And unlike so many other uh, cop movies, uh, the cop characters here aren't really glorified. Like Willem Dafoe's character is casually racist. The cops are kind of incompetent and it's not, there's never really a plot point. Like, like Willem Dafoe's character doesn't learn his lesson for being racist because, uh, does a Washington's character doesn't confront him about it. He just, he's kind of presented as something that he just deals with and rolls with it because this is day to day life living in New York city with, around white cops. And so, uh, and like the, the way the cops operate is never glorified. Like Spike Lee does not shoot the police officers in a way that makes them look cool. Just, uh, and, and which is really re- refreshing and interesting even before modern events. Uh, the whole thing is presented as being just this massive cluster cuss of a heist gone right or wrong, depending upon which part of the movie you're in. Uh, and I think that Spike Lee takes what could be a very boilerplate, you know, thriller and really lends a unique voice and perspective to it. And I, I really like this movie. It's definitely the most crowd pleasing Spike Lee movie out there. Uh, the one that's probably most attached to his personal interests, but there's still a lot of them in there. And there's still a lot of just the way he shoots these characters, the way he um, frames uh, the conflicts is very uniquely him, even if the story beats aren't. Uh, where does the rest of the crew fall in, on Inside Man? Because I know it was a hit when it came out, but I feel like it's not talked about much these days. I think I saw it one time in theaters and have not revisited it since, but I, I know that I've seen a lot of people in the past, I don't know, let's call it five or ten years or something, uh, talk a lot about this movie online and and how this is one of Spike Lee's best. So I, I think it's definitely worth a rewatch for me. Um, how does everybody else feel about it? I like it. <laughs> it's very good. It's it's definitely I think like his most mainstream movie, but there's there's really nothing wrong with that, and it's it's incredibly entertaining. Uh, Denzel Washington is is so good in this, but he's you know he's good in everything. Clive Owen is really good in this, even though I feel like he's one of those actors who's appeared in 
a lot of crap, but he can be good when he's, you know, in the right movie. So uh, I, I really dug this movie. Jodie Foster is really good at it, playing really against type. So I dig it. HT, have you seen this one? I feel like I saw it a long time ago when I was young, so I, I really can't remember much about it. I've, I just remember it being a cop thriller, but on honestly, I just can't really recall much of it. What about you, Brad? Yeah, I, re- I really like this movie. If anything, because uh, even though Jacob said that it doesn't uh, lean quite as much into Spike Lee's usual interests or what he the messages that he has in his movies, I actually think that I, I appreciate it um, just as much as those movies because he pulls back and he's he's not quite as uh, bombastic with how he portrays it. He kind of um, makes it a little bit more more subtle in that way. And I think that the there's still the same kind of you know relevant messages about you know social commentary, racial injustice, police corruption, that kind of thing uh, that are that are here, but just in a, a package that isn't quite so overt about it. Jacob, when you watched it sort of uh, in the same time frame as Black Klansmen, do those movies sort of seem like they're working in concert with each other, even though they're made, what, decades apart? Uh, both of them have a message that is um, maybe a little contradictory to like where, where the modern climate is which is both films fall very firmly on the stance that um, most cops suck, but there are good cops out there, which I, where, where I feel like in, in the climate of um, right now of defund the police, you know, <laughs> is thing that people aren't really, really willing to talk about. But it's, it's, it's a case where like as somebody who's had law enforcement in his family, it's something I feel I have very complex feelings about. Um, even though I am pro completely radically reorganizing uh everything about the American law enforcement system. I think Spike Lee is maybe a bit more forgiving than other, you know, radical black filmmakers would be of certain institutions. And uh, like Boots Riley, the director of um, Sorry to Bother You, has called him out on this. And they had that little Twitter feud a few years back. Uh, So I'm not saying Spike Lee's out touch. He certainly is not. But I I do think that he, um, uh, he is maybe willing to acknowledge that there are, it's not entirely bad apples, which is something that I struggle with myself having known cops in my family, but it's, mm-hmm. it's very, it's a very, very interesting thing to watch and think about considering current events. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what else have you been watching? Jacob? Oh, last thing. Then I'll shut up for a while. Uh, long gone summer is the latest 30 for 30 at ESPN. Uh, ESPN accelerated their 30 for 30 schedule uh, after, you know, the sports were canceled. And first there was the Michael Jordan series, the last dance. We talked about a lot. Then the Lance Armstrong documentary, then a Bruce Lee doc I haven't watched yet, and now Long Gone Summer, which is about uh, uh, Major League Baseball in 1998 when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were racing each other to break the record for most home runs in a single season. And this is a really warm, wholesome documentary about uh, two guys who at the time were seen as like sports NBA, sorry, um, Major League Baseball's like two biggest good guys who were seen as like, you know, straight up heroes with no bad baggage, you know, and, and for most of the documentary, it is very much like, Oh, I remember 1998. It was very nice. This was, this was fun. Baseball is fun. Sometimes America can be good. Sometimes we all come together uh, and enjoy the great pastime of the United States. Uh, and the last stretch, it does kind of pull the rug out from under you and delve into all the accusations about these guys, character that followed them in the years and decades after they uh, had this glorious year of baseball. And it makes me wish that maybe this was woven into the fabric of the larger film instead of being sort of a extended epilogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, because so much of the movie is a pleasant look back at a great baseball season. And, and the last 20 minutes is like, well, 
here's why it also sucked. And here's why the baseball is, is, is forever damaged by these two players. I'm like, Oh, I wish documentaries about that. So I couldn't spend 90 minutes feeling good followed by 20 minutes feeling like crap. I wish it was just a little more balanced how I presented it. Uh, but long gone summer, uh, if you're like me and you had vague memories in 1998, uh, it does crystallize what a huge friggin' deal it was when these two were going head to head and trying to race each other with home runs. Uh, I just wish the dark stuff had been was 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 was, was taken on a little less cowardly. I'll, I'll say it. I feel like it's cowardly to move all that stuff to the very end of the movie when it should have been they should have been upfront about it. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's if you like sports stories, this is another really solid thirty for thirty. Okay. All right. Uh, Brad, you have also been watching some stuff. What have you been watching recently? I have. And first, I, I do want to say I'm excited to sit down and watch Long Gone Summer because uh, I was actually um, lucky enough to go to a Cubs game during that time. And uh, we got there early enough for like this advanced thing they do sometimes for fans where you get to go out on the field. And so somewhere I have a picture of me with Sammy Sosa, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Um, like you're, you're in the same frame with him or you're standing like right next like, to him? Yeah. Like, like he, he, like he was on the field and like came and like was meeting people on the field. And so I, yeah, I have a picture of me with Sammy Sosa on, on nice. yeah, in the Wrigley outfield. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so what have I been watching? Um, I not, I haven't watched tons this week. I've just been taking time to do other things around the house and boring stuff that doesn't worth mentioning on the podcast, but I did, uh, decide to watch the lovebirds. Um, despite the overwhelmingly mixed reviews t- uh, to this movie, just because uh, I like Kumail Nanjiani and Issa Rae, and I just wanted to see them together. And uh, and it's the Michael Showalter thing, and you're a big yeah, fan of this yeah. Too, and right? actually, uh, I, I I had somehow forgotten that he directed this movie, just because it doesn't feel like anything he's ever done before. Um, so I was surprised to be reminded of that while I was watching it. And uh, you know, it's this movie is fine. Um, I feel like it's kind of weighed down by the premise itself, which is basically just a rehash of um, date night for the most part. And so many other, you know, kind of wrongfully accused uh, action comedies. Um, and this, this one definitely, you know, is uh, gets a little bit more um, edgy, raunchy, I guess you could say less goofy than the, the date night with um, Steve Carell and Tina Fey. And the best part is easily listening to Kumail and Issa Rae have this, you know, very tense banter back and forth. Because interestingly enough, I, d- I didn't even know this until I watched the movie, but the trailer kind of misleads you as to the concept of the movie itself. Because it makes it seem like these two are like on a early date when they get caught up in this, um, you know, scandalous uh, murder. But they've actually been together for four years and their relationship is kind of on the outs. So there's this constant tension and bickering and arguing between them. Um, and it's it's really, really funny uh, because just the conversations they have. But it's, yeah, I, I think it's weighed down by the, the larger narrative about them being on the run uh, from the cops and whatnot. And so it, it does some interesting spins on it here and there, especially when it comes to the uh, the end. But I just, I found myself wanting more from the comedy side as opposed to the actual plot and i just feel like it it didn't quite mesh together for me so that's the lovebirds and it's on netflix right now uh what else have you been watching uh, and then i also uh watched the art of self-defense uh which is a movie uh jacob raved about it was last year wasn't it that it came out yeah it was uh south by southwest last year followed by a very brief theatrical release where nobody saw it. yeah it's it's been on hulu for a while and i've been meaning to watch it and i uh, caught my eye last night and i was like yeah why not um and this movie was not what i was expecting 
but in a in a satisfying way because it is much darker and weirder and um i don't know like uh even way more violent than i was expecting i i I never watched the trailer for this movie but i knew what it was um vaguely what it was about and so watching it unfold with this really twisted dark comedic tone was very strange it's it's almost like um a much uh, like an a24 version of the foot fist way and it's um i I was laughing a lot but i was also just kind of like just just in awe of like how weird it all was because it doesn't feel like it quite takes place in the real world just because of how the characters talk to each other um and and the things that unfold but it's a it's a very fascinating truly original um comedy and i yeah I, I i really really enjoyed it although it's not a movie that i would necessarily go out of my way to watch again um at least not immediately it, it's so dark and spe- speaking to your description of it not not taking place in quite the real world i remember at the, when it first came out uh at south by i was calling it wes anderson's fight club which is a description i still stand by <laughs> yeah that that's that also works too yeah it's um yeah, it, it is. It is very much, uh, yeah, like an indie version of, of that kind of, you know, chaotic, violent kind of story. But yeah, it's. I think it's definitely worth watching, um, and that's available on Hulu right now. All right, that's the art of self defense, Chris. What have you been watching? Uh, I only have one thing this week, and that is Perry Mason, which is the new HBO series, which is based on the the older. Uh, TV series that everyone's grandparents watched uh, of the same name. And that's also based on this book series from the 1930s. And there was a, there was a radio drama version as well. Uh, anyway, it's good. Um, it has some structural problems. Uh, it, it's really like two different seasons in one, because if you know anything about Perry Mason, he, you know, he's known for being a lawyer, but the fir- there's eight episodes and the, the first four are all about Perry Mason being this like hard boiled private eye. And then the the final four are about him as a lawyer and working as a lawyer. And it really feels kind of cobbled together. Like it really feels like it was supposed to be two different seasons and then they, they just put them together. But beyond that, uh, I dug it. It's, it's, it's very well acted and the production design is, is gorgeous. And uh, you know, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. It'll be on HBO very soon. All right, so that's Perry Mason. HG, what have you been watching? So I watched The uh, Five Bloods, which is the new Spike Lee movie on Netflix. And um, I have some complicated feelings about it, so just uh, sit back for some ramblings from my part. Um, I really appreciated this movie and how it repurposed the Vietnam War movie narrative to be about Black trauma and the black American sort of experience in this war uh, that they fight that is not theirs to fight. And um, I think it's really excellent thought-provoking stuff. And I really, really loved Delroy Lindo's just powerhouse performance in this movie. But um, I have, um, I feel like it has a somewhat clumsy approach to the legacy of imperialism in Vietnam. Um And I think Spike Lee is actually trying to do something with it that goes beyond what we've seen in past Vietnam War movies, but he doesn't quite um, stick the landing. So I have been living at home uh, for the past couple months, as you guys know, and I actually sat down to watch The Five Bloods with my mom. Um, And uh, she was a refugee during the Vietnam War. Um, And she... um, 
immediately at the beginning of this film, it won't be spoilers for those who haven't seen it, there is a montage of um, photos of the Vietnam War, like the most iconic photos from the Vietnam War, showing, you know, the the ones that you will first come to mind of bodies burning, of monks uh, self, uh, self setting, setting themselves on fire, of um, Agent Orange burning the clothes off of children. And it's... Uh, becomes it's I feel like that right off the bat um it it's both Spike Lee's um way of deglamorizing the whole con- conceit of the Vietnam War movie which has always been in the past kind of a an interesting sort of examination of uh modern American masculinity through sort of the lens of war but um he does it he also does this he also approaches it from a distinctly American perspective, which is where I think I kind of uh, fall, uh, not out of out of sorts with this film, but it's kind of um, where I think this film kind of stumbles in its attempt to conflate the modern day issues of American racism and Trump MAGA America with the legacy of French imperialism. And it's, I, it's actually something that um, Spike Lee kind of picks up from uh, a Martin Luther King speech uh, beyond Vietnam, which I think he actually quotes at the end of the film. And it talks about how the uh, black civil rights movement is not far removed from the uh, Vietnamese independence movement. And um, we see a lot of that threaded throughout the film. And um, I, I just, I just, I feel like it's not quite as analogous as Spike Lee um, tries, attempts to make it out to be. There's a point later in the film where, Oh, I guess this, I guess this is kind of a spoiler, but um, Jean Reno's character, uh, who is a French businessman, puts on a MAGA hat, and I feel like that sort of, that image embodies exactly what Spike Lee is trying to do, trying to be like, okay, so we black people and Vietnamese people um, have this are fighting against the sort of the same forces of imperialism and racism, and those are two things that are connected, but I feel like they're not quite uh, something that can be intertwined. And I'm sorry if these, if these are ramblings that don't quite make sense, but I, I, I feel like um, I'm, I've been trying to unpack um, the what this film has been tried to do, what I feel about sort of that legacy as, as well. And um, it's been a little bit difficult just to kind of parse through it. Um, and um, I, I feel like um, this the, the Five Bloods is almost sort of an expansion of um, a scene that really struck me at the end of uh, Spike Lee's uh, Do the Right Thing, in which he, uh, in the end of the film, when the rioters are about to destroy the Korean convenience store and the Korean convenience store owners say in heavily accented uh, English, no, we are just like you. And the rioters say back, no, we're not the same. And they say we are the same. And it kind of comes to that conclusion that they are not quite the same, but they have similar, um, sort of have had similar struggles. And I feel like that that vagueness almost befits this what Spike Lee is trying to do in terms of like these two um, issues. Um, but anyways, my my overall takeaway from this movie, which I enjoyed for its attempt to talk about um, how uh, how these how these uh, past wars and sins will always haunt us, and these wars are always being waged in our minds, and um, I, I just feel like it still 
because it so heavily borrows from a lot of Vietnam War narratives, it still very much plays into the the um, the depiction of Vietnamese as victims and as those who are either you know either victims or are faceless animalistic sort of soldiers or gangsters or something and mm-hmm. there isn't as much complexity with the Vietnamese people um, as I wish it would be which you know I is not something that I expects much from a lot of Hollywood movies but because Spike Lee is, is uh, trying to make those connections so deeply to modern um, race and diversity movements with that uh, legacy of imperialism in Vietnam I feel like I wish there was a little bit more of that mm-hmm. so um I do think it's a step in the right direction, though. I think, um, Ben, you and Chris remember me talking a little bit about this in um, our discussions of Watchmen and how I feel like that show was on the cusp of taking to task the um, American uh, sort of legacy in Vietnam and um, what that imperialism and the war has done to the Vietnamese people. And uh, I feel like it never quite uh, went through with it or followed through with it. And I feel like the Five Bloods kind of tried to do it, but I just don't think the the like the like connection is, is quite as strong as Spike Lee makes it. Um, and um, yeah, I just, uh, I this also comes in the middle of me mulling my own, my family's own uh, relationship with the legacy of imperialism and how I, you know, I come from uh, a fairly upper middle-class family and in a way we have benefited from that that legacy just because the my family comes from uh south vietnam and they were uh fairly well off and coming to america they also were a little bit on the more well-off side compared to those sympathetic sympathetic victim narratives that we've often seen of Vietnamese people so I don't know it's just kind of it all it brought up a lot of complicated feelings and I've been still mulling it a lot and um uh I can't I say just because I I feel like it's kind of prevented me from enjoying this film as much as I could have but um I I really I really did enjoy The Five Bloods it just has a lot of um a lot of baggage I think coming into well, it that I don't think it's it's capable fully of uh of dealing with that's a perspective that I have not heard yet. So thank you for sharing that with us. I, I'm wondering, did you talk to your mom about it? What did she think about it? Like, did you guys have a, a big conversation about all the stuff that you just talked about? Like <laughs> after you guys were done watching the movie or well, is, are these just... We kind of did. It's actually interesting because during that montage of photos, my mom pointed out a couple of the photos that she had seen in front of, like happened in front of her house or um, she had some connection to, uh, like she knew of people who had some connection to the photos. And that was really just like eye-opening for me, I guess. And she enjoyed the film too. Uh, I think that but whenever we talk about the war, she doesn't really like to talk about it much. And we, it only ever comes up whenever she's had like a couple of glasses of drink at, at dinner or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she'll mostly talk about stories that are a little bit funny or um, humorous in context. And uh, the only thing she had to say about this movie is that there's a major plot in the film about um, this big stack of gold and who it really belongs to. And I think, I think this also is something that um, has to do with like the the issues I'm talking about too, like the the many forces at play and um, the, the black soldiers, the, the, the bloods believe that it belongs to them and they want to take it back as reparations for what the United States army put them through. But it was gold that was given to the Vietnamese soldiers who were fighting for with the Americans, um, but 
It's also something that's wanted by the Vietnamese people who are still in Vietnam, as well as like the French businessmen that I spoke about before, uh, played by mm. Jean Reno. And um, she said, I asked her, like, who does she think that gold belongs to? And she says, well, the Vietnamese people, but not the Vietnamese people in the movie. Because I feel like there is still, because because this the Vietnam War still stands in a lot of American minds as the great American failure, there is still like that whole perspective of seeing all Vietnamese people, whether they fought on the side of the Americans or whether they fought against the Americans as being one and the same kind of victim. And mm-hmm. I think that that's where some of the, the issues that I, I was speaking at come uh, are, are a little bit mixed. Well, and I'm glad that I have not watched this movie yet because now I'll be able to watch it with all of these things in mind. So thank you for that, HT. That's no really problem. great. Um, okay, what else have you been watching? Uh, I have been watching a K-drama called Extracurricular. This is also on Netflix. And it is a 10-episode um, drama that stars... Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Kim Dong-hee. There's not. It's actually mostly unknowns in this in this series. So if I say any names, none of you guys will know what it is. But I actually I actually highly recommend this series because I've seen quite a few K dramas, and often they do uh, tend more towards the the melodramatic and the soap operas to which they um, owe their owe their roots. And I I talked before about Itaewon Class and how that, while that drama is really good and I feel like it it makes the right steps in sort of like becoming a little bit more watchable for American audiences, it still tends a little bit towards that melodramatic melodramatic bloat. I think Extracurricular uh, is really great gateway series or at least just like a great series for people who enjoy Korean cinema. It's one of the few K-dramas, so to speak, that actually capture that heightened the heightened extremes of Korean cinema, both in violence and in tone. And it follows a high school student who is incredibly gifted, but incredibly impoverished uh, because of his gambling father. And it's an attempt to um, make ends meet and try to crawl his way out of this dead-end life. He starts an online prostitution ring. And he basically makes a lot of money from this app that he invents that basically turns like prostitution into sort of like a rideshare type of service. <laughs> and um, but then he is found out by a fellow classmate who blackmails him into making her making her his partner. And things kind of unravel from there as they become involved with local gangsters. There is a police detective that is hot on their tails and a fellow high school student who is actually one of the prostitutes uh, that is using his service. So it's really quite good. And um, it's 10 episodes long. Each episode is under an hour. And um, it's a it's really dark. And um, it feels very, um, uh, it feels like it is uh, dives into the underbelly of Korean society uh, in a way that uh, a lot of other Korean drama series have not and uh it's it's really excellent and excellently performed too I I really uh, enjoyed the the main um actor Kim Dong-hee he gives a really great sort of cowardly pitiful performance um and yet incredibly ruthless as well and uh there's a supporting character uh, played by Choi Min-soo who is just uh he plays like the muscle to um the high school students uh like online app and uh he is he gives like this great stoic um, gravitas uh, and burliness that just is so exci- like fun to watch. Like it reminds me a little bit of 
for example, like John Bernthal in um, in Daredevil, like he's so good and so um, just yeah, like he's got that placid stoic, uh, stoicism to him that's really watchable. So that's mm. um, extracurricular on Netflix. Uh, so Brad, I don't think there's anything that you've been eating, any, any weird stuff, but, um, you've been playing some stuff recently. Oh, I have. Yes. Um, something that I used to play uh, a lot more when I was, uh, younger and that's Halo 2. Um, one of my friends was in town over the weekend and, uh, we had kind of a, uh, a video game hangout, like a, like kind of like college style throwback. We had two TVs in the same room. We were hooked up to the same, uh, internet network. And we decided to play some old school Halo 2 because we both have the Master Chief collection. And man, uh, it's crazy how much more fast paced first person shooters are now because it feels like such a slog to try and play this. Um, there's, there's still a lot of people playing multiplayer on this game. And this is a game that I used to be really, really good at to the point where me and uh, some friends won a tournament when I was in college. Um, and now I suck at it. I am so <laughs> bad at this game now. It's just it, it's hard to go back because the controls are different from what shooter controls are like now with things like Call of Duty and whatnot. And just uh, I, I got better as I got more used to it again. Plus, you can also change the controls so that way they are more similar to what people are used to now. Uh, but even then, it's just it's hard to get back into the groove of it, and the it's just so it, it's it's weird that it's harder because it's slower. Um, but yeah, and and then and also it was weird because after we played that for a little bit, we went back uh, to playing Call of Duty Warzone, and for a second, I was super disoriented because everything I was doing was moving so much faster, and my controls were so erratic. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely quite a trip going back and playing some of these uh, these older games. <laughs> I played a ton of Halo 2 in college as well. I, I, I never uh, competed in any tournaments or anything. But uh, are you? did I mishear you? Are you saying that people are still actively playing this game online? Is that... Yeah, we, is that... So we, yeah, we, we played uh, multiplayer. And there are people that are still playing uh, all the versions of Halo online. So Because like, we, we even tried out the um, original one for a little bit. Uh, but we weren't having as much fun with it. And there's, there's still people that are doing online matches. And it's mostly because they... They um they remastered uh, and released anniversary editions of Halo and Halo Two, and they mm. they bundled a bunch of the Halo games into the Master Chief Collection. Um, and mine came with my my Xbox One when I bought it years ago. Um, and I, I hadn't really played it at at all since I since I got it because it was just included, and I never really felt the need to go back to those games. But uh, my friend had been playing them recently online with one of his friends, and so uh, he convinced me to get on and just give it a shot. So yeah, it was uh, it was weird. Nice. So that's Halo Two for uh, Xbox, Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty. Would you play it on? I played it on Xbox One. It's it's uh, yeah part of the Master Chief Collection. Nice. Uh, Jacob, what have you been playing? Uh, last week I talked about doing a preview article for Unmatched Cobble and Fog, the new uh, latest entry in the board game series Unmatched, where all kinds of famous characters. Uh, battle it out and uh i'm doing a review of this game uh so i've been playing a lot of it and full disclosure restoration games just sent me a copy uh and i've been playing the hell out of it i even painted the miniatures which you, you can see on my instagram page if you go on if you want to hit uh, over there uh but yeah this is another great entry in this series and what i want to highlight real quickly is just how well the game manages to blend theme with mechanics there's, there's so many games where it's like you know, I am so and so. I'm gonna roll these dice to fight you, and it's it just a matter of like higher numbers. And like that's just, 
I'm over dice in so many ways, and like unmatched very wisely is not a luck based game. Surely you have a hand of cards you draw, but the game is a tactical game where you make your decisions based on the cards in your hand, and there's no luck. Either you uh, play your cards right or you don't, and. But what I really appreciate is that even though the same rules apply to every character in the game, uh, you know, there's you can do two things per turn. There are three things you can do. And that's and that's like once you know that, you can play any character in the game. But despite that, the characters all play so differently. Like for example, if you're the Invisible Man, you your cards allow you to set traps, uh, appear suddenly, uh, hit somebody, and make quick escapes. You know, thematically appropriate to somebody who's invisible. Or mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes. His cards let him look at the opponent's hand, dismantle their hand, make them play different cards, and essentially um, destroy their options and make them uh, t- dismantle their case, so to speak. Outsmart uh, them. Yeah, exactly. The, the cards like simulate you outsmarting them. Uh, Dracula uh, is incredibly weak at first because he's a vampire. He can't go out. He can't go out at daytime. You know, he's there are all kinds of ways to kill a vampire. Uh, but if you let him sneak up on you, he can literally steal your life force, heal constantly by 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 being near you uh and then devast- like devastate you with sudden with cards that like just hit you hard enough to take you up in one hit if you're not careful and jekyll and hyde uh you're either playing as jekyll who's very defensive and very much about getting around the board and collecting more cards and um building up your strength and then you can switch over to hide at the beginning of your turn which is all about um unleashing devastating furious attacks with almost no defense against your enemies uh but the longer you hide, you you take damage for being hide. Uh, so it ends up. So like I said, as somebody who loves these characters, like from their literary sources, the idea that this really mechanically sound game is building its mechanics into in, in ways that you know lean into who these characters are. So when you play as a character on a board, you feel like, oh, I'm actually embodying this character. Uh, in addition to playing a really mechanically tight board game, it's really satisfying. So once you start blending in with other characters, like you know. Like the, when you combine it with the Bruce Lee set, or the Jurassic Park set, which also are, are as thematically in, intertwined, ends up being really strange and really satisfying. Uh, so I recommended it last week. I recommend it again. The entire Unmatched series is great, and Cobble and Fog is uh, maybe my favorite set in it yet. Is that out and available right now, Jacob, or is it still uh, yet to it, unveil? To it the is available through Restoration Games' website. Available right now. Uh, it'll be it'll be hitting out the retail. You know you know game stores and hobby stores and other online shops on 24th june 24th cool all right i think well actually since we have a couple minutes let's uh we we haven't gone around the circle and told people where they can find us online in in a while so let's do that real quick before we wrap up today's episode uh jake let's start with you where can people find you uh i am on a twitter break right now but i am there uh at jacob s hall uh i'll post once in a blue moon but i am not really interacting there so i apologize uh I am. I recently made my, my Instagram non-private. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. I am at Jacob Samuel Hall. It is mostly cat pictures and miniature painting pictures, uh, but you can check that out if you're at all interested. Brad, how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, um, and you can also check out my podcast, Go Flicks Yourself. Uh, we recently started doing remote uh, recorded episodes, so we have extra guests coming on, and the audio is not as good as it usually is because of that, but uh, we're trying to do it as often as we can. So feel free to check that out on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. HT, how about you? 
You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at htranbui. Um, Instagram, you get to see some cooking adventures, although they've been less lately because I've been at home eating my mother's home-cooked foods. And uh, you can also check out my podcast, The Millennial Falcon. Um, But we are also on hiatus recently too, so nothing to really check out there. But uh, just check those out at some point on iTunes or Google Play dive into those archives uh chris where can people find you uh i am on twitter at c evangelist of 413 and as i mentioned earlier i have a podcast called 21st century spielberg it's on itunes and spotify it's it's pretty much everywhere so please go find that and listen to it because i i put a lot of work into it awesome uh you can find me on twitter and instagram at ben pears and you can find this podcast slash film daily published three times a week you can find it on slashfilm.com, all of the popular podcast apps. I would encourage you just to go to slashfilm.com and read some of the work that we spend all day doing. So <laughs> do that uh, as, while you're listening to the show. Uh, you can send feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It takes five seconds and really helps us out a lot in terms of ratings and visibility and all that stuff. Uh, Tell your friends about the show, spread the word, and thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time. Hey, Ben, Ben. Yes, yes, Jake. I'm holding in my hands the gargantuan book of insults, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, repost, cost equips, implant put downs by Louis A. Safian. Uh, Do you know what my plan today is? I don't. I feel like on Peter's behalf, I should, you know, say some ridiculous uh, statement that I know is going to be instantly overruled uh, by you, but I I can't think of anything. So sorry, Peter, this is all I got right now. Well, 99% (laughs) of my enjoyment from reading from the Gantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, repost, cost equips, and implied put down by Louis A. Safian is that it drives Peter crazy. But Peter is not here. So I've opened up a, a webpage entitled the 15 best compliments you can ever give or receive. Okay. I was really worried that this was going to be another like secretly racist uh, joke site. Like that one time when we accidentally stumbled across one. Well, so I'm glad this is complimentary. Well, I don't think author Pam Levine is racist. According to her profile, uh, Pam Levine is a holistic wellness passionista and a well-being oh. luminary. <laughs> oh no. I'm sorry, Pam Levine for openly laughing at you. <laughs> Passionista? I've never heard that word before. Well, uh, if you want to know more about Pam Levine, her inspiration through writing and podcasting you found at Huffington Post, as well as other lifestyle sites. Okay. But this is for lifehack.org. Lifehack.org slash three, four, two, five, five, six, slash the dash 15 dash best dash compliments dash you could, sorry, you dash could dash ever give dash. Uh, Okay. Ben. You are nothing less than special. (laughs) Thank you very much. Chris, you are one of a kind. Cool. (laughs) Brad, you always make people smile. Aw, thanks. HT, you are always there for me. Aw. Ben, you always see the bright side of things. (laughs) He's just going back around the circle again. Okay. Chris, you would make a beautiful father. Oh, I don't know about that. I feel like that's one of those, um, underhanded dis- insults. Uh, no, notice he didn't say good father. He said beautiful father. Yes. <laughs> Brad, Brad, you always throw a great party. Uh, I am known for my classic parties. HT, you are the best friend, mother, father, wife, husband, partner anyone could ask for. <laughs> oh, thank you. Are you supposed to choose one there, or, or, or is HD somehow all of them? I'm a friend for all.
Also, ben, ben, a father to us all. Ben, you, may, you never cease to amaze me, uh, spoken in a positive light. It instructs me to do. <laughs> okay, great. Chris. That one's, that one's inflection-based. You set such a great example for others. Oh, my wish. <laughs> Brad, you raised... Chris. Brad, you raised the bar. Oof. I love it. H- HT, you always go the extra mile. Yeah. Ben, you are always willing to lend a hand. <laughs> How many more of these are there, Jacob? <laughs> I can't take this earnestness Chris, anymore. Chris, you walk the talk. Uh, <laughs> and Brad, you have a heart of gold. <laughs> I love it. I love that somebody thought all of those platitudes were worth compiling into an article. Yeah. Unfortunately, I ran out of uh, uh, examples to do one more for HT, so I've opened up the Gargantuan book to tackle <laughs> this. Attack I didn't deserve this. Tackless Boars, page 189. <laughs> when, when she drops cigar ashes on a host rug, she spills her scotch and soda on it to prevent a fire. Uh, you know what? <laughs> that is so absurd. Resourceful. Uh, HT, were you about to say that you've done that before? No, I was saying, you know what? The rug is probably better for it anyways. 